It's the liver that gets all the food up the portal vein. It decides what your body will see. So if you decide uh, to, that you're living in such a place that you have a very high carbohydrate intake, well, your body will deal with that. If on the other hand, you're having a very high fat intake, you know, a traditional um, Inuit lifestyle, for instance, then your body will deal with that. And both are entirely compatible with health. But there's one thing your body can't deal with, and that's excess calories over a long period of time. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today from Newcastle, United Kingdom, is Professor Roy Taylor. Welcome, Roy. Hi, Nathan. Great to be here talking to you. And thank you. It's my pleasure. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I've heard you on a few podcasts, and I've read many of your papers. I'm really excited to talk about uh, your research in reversing diabetes. So um, perhaps before we get into the details, can you give us a quick outline of um, your background in, in the research? Sure. I've worked as a hospital doctor specializing in diabetes really since 1976. And so over that time, I've been listening to my patients. And really, there are several things about type 2 diabetes that struck me. One is the difficulty people find in losing weight in general, but also the, the sheer horror of the disease. It is sometimes regarded as uh, just a a fairly insignificant condition by many doctors who don't actually have it themselves. But in fact, for most patients, the, the moment of diagnosis comes as an absolute hammer blow to them. You've got type 2 diabetes. And it's really the impact on people that has pushed forward my research. And so over the past few decades, I've been trying to understand what happens to food in the body. Because quite clearly, type 2 diabetes was something to do with that. And over the years, we've gradually pieced together a pattern of what actually happens after food is not only eaten, but also absorbed, that sort of black box that no one mm -hmm. thinks about. And that has led us directly on to realizing the, the nature of type 2 diabetes. Yeah, fascinating. Sounds like an interesting journey. Um, so perhaps before we dive into there's probably, I don't know, you can tell me, there's um, what's the general consensus or f from a layman's perspective, uh, certainly from this industry, there's probably some erroneous views on what I think it's diabetes, like primarily excess carbohydrate, sort of quote unquote wears out the pancreas. Um, and it's a lot of the interventions around improving carbohydrate meta metabolism, but yours seems to be a next level up. So maybe yeah, if, can you compare and contrast some of the prevailing views versus where you're moving to or Right. Yes, thanks. Yes, I think the the main prevailing view, Nathan, is still the ingrained belief that type 2 diabetes is a lifelong, inevitably progressive disease. Now, that's reinforced for most 
doctors, dietitians, diabetes nurses, because of what they see happening in front of their eyes mm. with their own patients, backed up by the large studies. Because there's no doubt that when cohorts of people with type 2 diabetes are followed up over time, they get inexorably worse. It doesn't matter how well controlled they are. The pancreas function goes downhill in what looks like a linear fashion on average. So that's the predominant belief. But mixed in with this is this preoccupation with the macronutrients, mm. how much carbohydrate, how much fat. And this has been a huge industry in itself and one which has become rather unbalanced with forgetting that the body doesn't actually see much of the food you eat. It's the liver that gets all the food up the portal vein. It decides what your body will see. So if you decide uh, to, that you're living in such a place that you have a very high carbohydrate intake, well, your body will deal with that. If on the other hand, you're having a very high fat intake, you know, a traditional um, Inuit lifestyle, for instance, then your body will deal with that. Mm. And both are entirely compatible with health. But there's one thing your body can't deal with, and that's excess calories over a long period of time. So that's where the story really begins, because it's not about the type of food stuff. Any consideration of physiology and a moment solid thought should lead doctors to twig that one. So all the hullabaloo about high this and high that really boils down to how people find it most uh, easy to restrict the total food intake. So if they're living in a high carbohydrate environment, yes, well, ensuring that excess carb is, is avoided is entirely logical. But overall, what matters is not the particular balance of foodstuffs. That's a, uh, a grand illusion. What we're really dealing with is an excess of energy intake resulting in a surfeit of energy supplied to the beta cells, which are exquisitely tuned to respond to this. And some of us are susceptible to exercise excess. Interesting. Uh, sorry, to, to a calorie excess, I yeah. should say. Yes, interesting. And so this is framed up under what you've dubbed the, the twin cycle of, um, you mentioned the, the liver and also the pancreas. This I find is fascinating. So can you step us through when someone over, it seems a chronic period of time, has this uh, caloric excess, um, these organs tend to bear the brunt of it. And that's my understanding of how diabetes develops. So can you expand on that? Yes, indeed. This really all started with a thrust of research, really from uh, the late 1990s, trying to understand what the liver was up to in type 2 diabetes. Because we tend to forget that the sugar in the blood is almost entirely from the liver. It's a tiny amount that's from food, obviously higher proportion after meals. But all the time, the liver is pumping sugar into the blood as glucose. Now, that's what determines your blood glucose and mine when we wake up in the morning. But also how rapidly the liver shuts off after eating determines just uh, how much sugar continues to be pumped in the blood, even when you're busy trying to deal with the incoming food. Now, this is controlled by insulin, which can switch off glucose production normally. But of course, 
that depends upon the liver being sensitive to insulin. And we began to realize that the amount of fat inside the liver was absolutely the determinant of liver insulin responsiveness, if you like, or sensitivity. Right. Nothing to do with the genetic determinants with some uh, exercise modifiers that happens in muscle. It's a separate entity. So knowing that the amount of fat in the liver determined what your fasting blood sugar was allowed me to sit back and really think about it because type 2 diabetes is the commonest metabolic disease in humans. Now, if something is this common, its cause has to be simple. Now, there are all sorts of hypotheses about cause of type, type 2 diabetes, many of them quite far-fetched, mm -hmm. but some of them, for instance, the, uh, the bacteria in the gut, have become widely believed, even though they're completely fatuous when you look at the real solid evidence. So figuring out how this could all come together was brought into sharp focus because a very determined patient came to see me in 2004 and demanded that they be cured of type 2 diabetes. How can I get rid of it? I don't want treatment. I want to get rid of it. And at that time, I'd already twigged to the, the liver and the fasting level. And so I said, well, you know, you can improve it drastically if you were to lose substantial weight, because it was quite clear that if people lost weight, their liver fat would go down. No magic there. So this person went away, did that. But the amazing thing was that not only the fasting sugar came down, it returned entirely to normal. Now, this person had come down about four BMI units yeah. and, in fact, had started off in the normal range. We'll touch on that again later. But they hadn't got thin. They'd returned to their healthy weight that they used to be when they were 21. That set me into a thinking phase. And clearly, the pancreas and the liver had to be linked how, did, how could this happen? And that thinking led me to the twin cycle hypothesis that we published eventually in 2008. And it goes like this. If you're eating excess food, just an extra mouthful a day over many years, then the amount of fat stored in the liver will gradually stock up. Different in different people, but it will gradually increase. Now, if that happens, the level of sugar in the blood is going to rise just very slightly within the normal range. And guess what will happen? You'll make more insulin to try and control that. But there's a funny thing about insulin in that it will actually stimulate the liver to turn any carbohydrate into fat. And going down that pathway, the fat tends to be stored inside the liver cell. Well, you could imagine this process gradually getting underway in the liver, a vicious cycle started by a little bit too much food and then insulin nudges up. So any excess carbohydrate worsens the fat level and fasting sugar levels are going to tend to rise. Again, controlled by how much the insulin can respond. But that's where the pancreas cycle comes in because not only does the liver keep the body going, with the demands for glucose. The liver keeps the body going with the demands for all energy, including fat. So the liver makes fat 
and passes it out to the rest of the body in the form of a lipoprotein, very low density lipoprotein. And this triglyceride will be delivered to all tissues in the right amount and excess will get stored in subcutaneous tissue. Now that's fine, but at some point, the subcutaneous tissue stores are going to get a bit full. Varies widely between people. Some people have got positively athletic fat under the skin. They can store vast <laughs> amounts and we can see it. People like me, if we have excess fat coming in, have not got the capacity under the skin to store it, and we can stack it up elsewhere because that's the only place to keep it. And this is where ectopic fat comes from. Now, that term usually refers to fat inside the abdomen, visceral fat, but the visceral fat is not that important in itself. We now know very clearly that it's not a major player. What is the major player is the fat actually inside the organs. So we come back to the liver fat. And in the pancreas, if excess fat silts up, we've known since the early 90s with brilliant studies by Roger Unger in the States that excess fat for a long time in susceptible animals will cause the insulin producing cells to stop responding to sugar. So you get no acute insulin response after effectively meals. Roger Unger was a brilliant man. He not only did that in the diabetes susceptible uh, islets, because he took up the islets from the pancreas and studied them separately from the animal. And these were young animals. So you were just studying the genetics as it were, but modifying the environment artificially. And he showed that the susceptible rats who would get diabetes with overfeeding lost their ability to produce insulin. However, the islets from the littermates who were not going to get diabetes, no matter how fat they got, were completely impervious to this excess fat. Mm. Now, that's a glittering insight that's lain almost unnoticed in the literature mm. since 1994. But quite clearly, coming back to the twin cycle hypothesis, if the liver was accumulating fat, then those people who are susceptible might succumb with regards to their beta cells. And then the insulin levels after uh, meals would not be able to be sustained. Glucose levels would rise after meals. That glucose could only be turned into fat in the liver, which is going to make the whole situation worse and more fat arrives at the pancreas. So you have the twin cycles of type 2 diabetes the liver spinning first, then the pancreas switches on, and they interact, grind miserably on for decades, <laughs> over a decade, and a person gets type 2 diabetes. How outrageous. And they'll get it, uh, irrespective of the BMI, because some people have got amazing subcutaneous fat that can contain large amounts safely from a metabolic point of view, whereas other people cannot do that. So that's where the twin cycles came from. And it was, if you like, armchair philosophy. It was a hypothesis. Now, the beautiful thing about a hypothesis is that you can try and destroy it. And that's, of course, the whole basis of science. Any scientist who sets out to prove his hypothesis is not really a scientist. And we could see how to destroy it. And so we set about trying to do that. 
Fascinating, and I'll get to that um, strategy in a moment. A couple of things, there's so many uh, valuable pieces of information you mentioned there. Um, so first of all, the there's a piece around the, the muscle, I think, in this um, twin cycle. Because you've shouted a few um, perceptions I had around the visceral fat. There was talk for a while there about you know the, the type of fat and it being inflammatory and, and so forth. Um, so maybe I'll start with that. Um, so do you think visceral fat's more just a like, proxy that there's other ectopic fat that's in the liver and pancreas? Um, there's a lot of discussion around waist circumference and so forth. So, yeah, what's the, the views, your position on yeah the, the visceral fat? Yes, the detailed studies of visceral fat compared with fat inside the organs, especially liver fat, um, shows very clearly that the liver fat calls the shots. Now, for a while, it was assumed that visceral fat provided fatty acids directly to the liver. Mm. That was synthesizing more output of triglyceride by the liver. The detailed studies show that's just not the case. The uh, the vast majority of fatty acids that are put into uh, triglyceride produced by the liver are coming from the subcutaneous stores and are just being passed out to the liver to do its thing and pass out lipid to the rest of the body. So um, this idea that visceral fat had a special role because of its position has been really taken apart and shown not to be the case. But for the average person looking after patients, it's an enormously useful thing Mm. because the single best simple surrogate for excess fat in the body is change in waist circumference. So that right. thin-looking chap who has got type 2 diabetes, you ask him what size trousers he used to wear when he was 21. And he'll say, well, I used to have a 32-inch waist. And what is it now? Well, it's 36. Ha! Okay, got it in one. Now, there's no reason for an increase in waist circumference other than gaining lard. Mm. It can be said very abruptly. You don't increase your bone size. You don't increase your liver size. Mm. It's the fat. What does it? And so we should be able to see very clearly that this is a very useful clinical measurement. But metabolically, it doesn't matter. In everyday clinical practice, this distinction matters relatively little um, because this stomach size expanding is bad from a number of points of views. We're just focusing on the diabetes where there are these niceties that we've now unraveled. Yeah, fascinating. Also, um, muscle insulin sensitivity, I used to think that that played yeah. a role. Um, there's a bit of a caveat there that it, it, it's a, it predicts insulin resistance, but it's not necessarily the, the, the um, yeah. cause. Can you expand on yes. that? Yes, certainly. Now, from the 1970s, early 80s onwards, it was recognized that muscle insulin resistance, which is just the reciprocal of insulin sensitivity, uh, was the earliest metabolic feature of type 2 diabetes. If people were had a low sensitivity to insulin and muscle, they were the lot that were likely to develop diabetes in the future. So we know that. But then really trying to improve muscle insulin sensitivity, which you can do with various means, it proves 
to a small extent with exercise, we all operate within a certain band of mm. uh, insulin sensitivity that is quite clearly genetically determined in our right. muscle. So if you happen to have quite a high sensitivity, well, you can exercise it up to giddy limits and you may become a long distance athlete. That's great. Um, but the most striking thing for me was when we did our first study to try and destroy the twin cycle hypothesis, this was a counterpoint study. So this is back in 2008. We took a group of people with ordinary type 2 diabetes. We limited very severely what they ate using a dietary approach that I knew would be uh, acceptable to a degree and successful in getting about 15 kilograms weight loss. That's what I'd guessed at the back of the envelope calculation <laughs> we needed to, to have to test that hypothesis because if we could remove that fat and if nothing happened metabolically then the twin cycle hypothesis was wrong well we did this people lost an average of 15.3 kilograms wow. of body weight the diabetes went away and we can come on to the various dramatic bits of the counterpoint study but focusing on your question of the moment the amazing thing was that even though liver insulin sensitivity was normal within seven days muscle insulin sensitivity was hardly changed mm -hmm. even eight weeks after the onset of the diet there was no change in this value of insulin sensitivity in muscle that was remarkable it caused me to sit up and think what was going on but was it real well we repeated these observations in our next study, the counterbalance study, which looked at duration of type 2 diabetes and the effect of that on the reversal. But focusing on what we're talking about, what was happening in this matter of the liver, of the muscle insulin sensitivity not going back to normal? Well, we need to look at the population. In studies of insulin sensitivity, doctors and scientists tend to use shorthand. The average was this and it changed like mm. this. But hey, let's look at all our patients. Now, I was helped in this matter by Leaf Group from Finland, who had a, a huge series of population-based euglycemic clamps. And he provided me with the data, and I summarized it and published it in Diabetes in 2012, that the normal population range of insulin sensitivity in muscle was quite wide. Mm. And guess what? The range of, of insulin sensitivity in muscle for people with type 2 diabetes was also wide, but it was entirely within this normal range. It was just shifted to one side. Right. There were some people with type 2 diabetes who had pretty decent uh, level of sensitivity, in fact, above the average for the background population. But if you look at the people who had low muscle insulin sensitivity, the majority of them were not diabetic. So here we've got a parameter that is normal. Look at people in the street. Guess what? They look different. Mm -hmm. We're all individuals. And so we need to grasp that and understand that yes, we can operate with normal metabolism with a wide range of insulin sensitivities in muscle. And 
if you happen to have low insulin sensitivity in muscle, then after meals, you're not able to store your meal carbohydrate properly. My work has relied upon developing special methods of using basically an MRI scanner to really track chemical substances within the body. And we're able to show this is work done uh, in association um, with my colleagues at Yale University, Jerry Shulman in particular, that after an ordinary meal, we have one third of the carbohydrate stored in our muscle as glycogen. Now, that peak is at five hours after starting to eat the meal, but we, de- we defined what happened to f- that carbohydrate in meal. In type 2 diabetes, people with type 2 diabetes store a trivial amount in muscle. Where does the rest go? Well, some of it is the high level in plasma, in blood, mm-hmm. but the rest can only go down the other pathway. And the other pathway is turning that excess carbohydrate, that excess glucose, into lipid. So if you happen to have a genetically low muscle insulin sensitivity, you will have a tendency to push the foodstuffs into fat in your liver after every meal. So if your weight stays constant, it doesn't matter at all. Your liver will juggle your substrate It will look after your metabolism. Don't worry. But if you face your liver with excess calories and your poor old liver has to deal with this matter of converting to fat and then trying to use it, then you're heading for trouble. So that's why muscle insulin sensitivity is a good marker of risk for type Mm. 2 diabetes. But if it's low, then most people in the population don't have type 2 diabetes. So you see, it's just one of these normal parameters. We have to open the eyes of doctors to the fact that individuals differ and we shouldn't use the average for all comers. Yeah. And that's a really good segue for my other big question. You mentioned that the two-in cycle is really fascinating. The other really fascinating component for me is this personal fat threshold. Um, And this, as you mentioned, that even lean people can develop diabetes because their body level of body fat is too great for their them and essentially so yeah can you describe that so bmi um what's the relationship with bmi and diabetes obviously the higher the bmi the greater risk but it's not a perfect correlation yeah absolutely this is a really important point nathan and it's something that's very close to the heart of people with type 2 diabetes Mm. because they resent being labeled as being uh, stuck with a disease that's associated with sloth and being too fat, uh, lack of moral fiber. Well, and then that's also joined in with the fact that doctors trot out the phrase that type 2 diabetes is caused by obesity. But let's do another reality check. What's the, uh, the BMI range, the population range at the time of diagnosis of type 2 diabetes? I can tell you for the UK, it's almost exactly 50% who are obese. The other 50% have a BMI under 30. Now, 10% have a BMI in the normal range. That's not explained by ethnic characteristics because, of course, there are ethnic differences in BMI range. But we need to 
open the eyes of doctors again that type 2 diabetes is nothing to do with with obesity as defined by BMI. It's not a BMI cutoff disease. And I can say this with full confidence, calling upon not only my first anecdotal patient, but with the results of the big direct study that we carried out in primary care. Because if we look at the metabolic effects of going down from a BMI of 45 to a BMI of 42, which was the average fall, they're the same as going down from a BMI of 27 to 24. Mm. In other words, you've got type 2 diabetes, you need to shed about three BMI units. Rarely someone needs to shed a little bit more than that. But you see, each person has gone over a threshold. They've moved into a range where they can no longer safely store fat in the fat layer under the skin. So for some people who don't have much of a fat layer and are genetically unable to produce much of a fat layer, they will get type 2 diabetes with what's regarded laughingly as a normal BMI. And I say laughingly because doctors should realize that a person's BMI is that when they're at a healthy weight. Now, assuming that they weren't overweight or obese by the age of 21, that's a good guide. Right. Now, how many people in their 40s and 50s listening to this podcast have a BMI the same as when they were 21? Well, you know, this is a cause to think about. This is not being fattest or mm. whatever it This is a matter of considering how the body functions and just what constitutes metabolic health. So we can tell a person who comes out with the very frequent words, why have I got type 2 diabetes? All my friends are fatter than me and they don't have it. Well, it's an unfortunate throw of the dice with the genes that you happen to have you're susceptible to a lower level of fat than most people. And the only way of getting rid of your type 2 diabetes is to drop the fat level in your body towards that that you had when you were 21. Again, with that caveat about not being overweight at the time. Yeah. So yeah. just in, in a, uh, hopefully a few words, that summarizes a personal fat threshold concept, which I think is the single new idea I've come up with, which is most readily grasped and understood by patients. Yes. And we don't know, science doesn't know who's, where your, your threshold is um, theoretically. Like it's just, um, there's no proxies. Like you mentioned waist circumference earlier. As, as you said, it's just a, a roll of the dice that some people can get away with putting on uh, large amounts of weight and not developing diabetes, whereas someone could go from a, a BMI of 23 to 25 and, and develop it. Indeed. And that's something I've got in my sights with our current study, ah. where we're actually focusing on those people who have a normal or near normal BMI and uh, looking at what happens with loss of weight. So we've taken away any complexity that is due to obesity, because this population has a BMI of 27 or less. So here we're looking at changes in the in the blood to see if we can identify when people flip and go from diabetes back to normal. And we're doing that by getting people to lose weight, keeping it steady for a while, lose a bit more weight, right. keeping it steady. So we're taking a stepwise approach hmm. to this. And so maybe 
Uh, let me see. This study will finish gathering data about January next year, and hopefully we'll be in a position to announce the results next year. Um, but yes, it would be so easy, so nice to be able to measure the personal fat threshold. But at the present time, we can only define it in the terms of if you have type 2 diabetes, you have surpassed your personal fat threshold. Get back onto it. Hmm. So that's how it works at present. Okay. All right. So you mentioned earlier um, good scientists try and create um, studies essentially to, to knock down their hypothesis rather than the other way to support it. So, um, and I suppose they'd be better designed than if that still stands at that then therefore supports that hypothesis. So can you tell me about some of the studies you've done on um, re um, reversing diabetes with your caloric restriction? Yes. Well, probably the single most clinically relevant study was the counterbalance study. It's published in Diabetes Care in 2016. And that study asked the question, does it matter how long a person had diabetes? Uh, with regard to how easily it may be sent back to normal. Now, in my first study of this phenomenon, the counterpoint study, uh -huh. um, I deliberately selected people with up to four years duration of diabetes. That was partly because we didn't want people with complications of diabetes, but also I recognized that if the beta cells were going to be flexible and able to be sent back to normal, it would happen most easily in that range. And indeed, all the people in counterpoint went back to normal metabolism. So in counterbalance, we just opened up the gates and said, hey, if you've got type 2 diabetes, we would like to study you. And we had a range of duration from six months to 23 years. And we showed very clearly that in the first four years, there was a very good chance of getting rid of the type 2 diabetes. Up to 10 years, you had about a, an evens chance. But beyond 10 years in that study, we saw nobody who had corrected their diabetes back to new, uh, the non-diabetic range. I would couple that comment about the study with the important observation that some people can do this. Right. And I have... Uh, two people who both have 23 years duration of diabetes at the start, who are on two lots of oral agents, were able to come off them entirely and have normal, that is non-diabetic glucose metabolism uh, after this enormously long time. And that insight is quite important because it mm. tells us something about the genetics of the beta cell. Mm. It tells us that again, there's a population distribution of a characteristic that we could call resilience. Some people have beta cells that are really quite resilient to the attack by fat, eventually, plus glucose as well. And they're the individuals who will pop up at 23 years and still be able to reverse their diabetes. In the first 10 years, we sort people out into those who can and can't. If you lose sufficient weight, and you still haven't reversed, sadly, you know, your beta cells were relatively non-resilient, just uh, much more susceptible to go under permanently with the fat attack. And so here we have something that's really very important, 
the resilience of the beta cell. Again, we don't have a test for it. But mm. hey, this is a phenotyping. We've pointed out a vital parameter that can be examined by geneticists. They no longer need to drill great deep holes mm. trying to find uh, oil in random places. They can drill precisely. They can look at the differences genetically between these people who can and these people who can't reverse their diabetes after a long period. So it's really quite important to understand this durability thing because it matters what we say to our patients in the clinic. We now understand that uh, Mrs. Diabetes six months is almost certain to get rid of her diabetes if she would lose this 15 kilograms of weight. On the other hand, if we have Mr. 15 years duration, we're looking at a matter of certainly feeling much better, probably dramatically improving the control, if on insulin, almost certainly stopping the insulin, but only a modest chance of completely getting rid of the diabetes. So you see the counterbalance study tells clinicians how to frame those important words um, uh, up front with the consultation. Because setting the expectations right Mm -hmm. is just a fair deal for our patients. We've got to get this right to explain that we're not dealing with a magic remedy. We're dealing with something that is understood and we can explain the approximate chances. Yeah, yeah. So that, that I think is probably the best example of uh, trying to uh, destroy the idea. And Mm. I was trying to destroy the idea (laughs) that you could reverse type 2 diabetes of any duration, which originally I thought was unlikely. After the counterpoint study, I was excited because I thought it might be possible. And we've demonstrated very clearly that it's not possible in uh, those people with long duration diabetes. Sure. So... The resilience of the beta cells in those who recover, um, what do you suspect's going on there? So they've been like overwhelmed with fat for however long. They've got diabetes. You drop the weight, the fat levels from the pancreas um, decrease, and it's like they've been sleeping in dormant and they've just, they just wake up. What, how do, what's, yep. what's the thought there as to how it's working? <laughs> Great question, Nathan. And this really touches the heart of what's going on here. And now... I refer not to my own studies, but to the the studies of other people. Uh, Anne Clark in Oxford was the first person to point out that beta cells would respond badly to chronic fat, but would show some recovery afterwards. But that work has been really dramatically taken forward and set in context by uh, uh, Dr. Akili in New York, Mimo Akili who's been working in the field of initially insulin receptors and then insulin resistance uh, for as long as I've been working in my field. And we've known each other that length of time. But he's demonstrated that uh, beta cells can de-differentiate. They lose their capacity to produce insulin. Now, that's the highest point of specialization of the endocrine cells of the pancreas. When they de-differentiate, Amazingly, some of them turn into alpha cells. They produce glucagon. Good grief. Is this why in diabetes, glucagon levels are raised? Well, maybe. But also, 
uh, some cells just go back to producing uh, no hormone at all. And if you take away this metabolic stress, the cells can re-differentiate provided they haven't been suppressed for too long. So you can see this cell that's evolved as an exquisite uh, detector of energy levels in the body can be overwhelmed in some people more easily than others. And but when it's overwhelmed, it goes into a selfish, self-protective mode of just looking after itself, staying alive. Cue the histologists because histologists have been looking at the pancreas of type 2 diabetes for over a century and staining for insulin more recently. Now, what do they see? Well, they see 50% loss of beta cells, dead or dying through apoptosis, and that's become a belief. But of course, they're not dead. They're merely hiding <laughs> because the histologist immunostains for insulin and calls a cell that's producing insulin a beta cell. And this histologist will only see about 50% at the time of diagnosis of diabetes, steadily going downhill from there. But of course, he's not seeing the physiology. He's not seeing that these cells would quite willingly wave the flag again and stand up as a, a stalwart beta cell, given the right metabolic environment. So. This concept of dedifferentiation, loss of specialized function with potential regain of specialized function is really a vital one. And Mimo Achilles' work has developed, further work's been done indeed in Newcastle, where uh, we have the, the person leading the UK islet transplant program. Some islets can't be transplanted, we can right. research them. We've been able to show that markers of dedifferentiation are considerably higher in people with type 2 diabetes than in the beta cells of those people who don't have type 2 diabetes. So I think this is pretty much a certainty. Now, nothing certain in science. Newton was wrong, as shown by Einstein. Einstein was later wrong, mm -hmm. as shown by uh, uh, the, the theories of the 21st century. So you know, we've got to be humble in the face of what we know and what we don't know. And perhaps the hallmark of a good scientist is recognizing what we don't know as absolutely certain. But we can be absolutely certain we can reverse diabetes. We can be absolutely certain of the, uh, the reality of beta cell dedifferentiation and redifferentiation. And as clinicians, we just have to move on the, the grounds of uh, the most likely thing that will benefit our patients. So that's why I would put considerable weight upon uh, this explanation at the present time. Yes. Uh, fascinating how plastic these uh, beta cells are. Amazing. So um, the, this, the treatment is um, to cut off the supply of nutrition, essentially. And even this, your strategy is probably different to the, you know, the general view of a, a a gradual weight loss. Um, you went in with the severe caloric restriction with liquid diet. Um, so can you describe the rationale for doing that and duration and response and so forth? Yeah. Well, it must be quite clear to 
anyone who looks hard at what happens to their patients or gathers data, conducts audit, that this approach of a slow, steady calorie restriction does not work. Mm. For instance, uh, an audit carried out in a leading obesity clinic in the UK, which was never published, showed that at six months, the weight loss was minus six kilograms. When you look at all comers and you give out this worthy advice, you make absolutely no difference. Now, of course, uh, some um, uh, people can persuade and there'll be some dietitians that can use this method to achieve reasonable results. Certainly, that uh, has got to be acknowledged. So, again, this isn't one size that fits all. But as a general approach, it is nonsense. But I knew from the old metabolic studies of the 60s and 70s that uh, severe calorie restriction, not down to the old levels we used in the very early days of 400 calories a day, but an, a diet that was nutritionally complete, which meaning all the micronutrients, minerals, etc., you need uh, for health and protein. Um, an 800 kilocalorie diet, anything six to 800, was a reasonable uh, level to aim for. And also that it was a way of producing rapid weight loss and I needed rapid weight loss. So I devised a method of using uh, a liquid calorie diet over a short period of time. Now, I chose a liquid calorie diet because one of the difficulties of losing weight, listening to my patients over the years, was the description of the cumulative stress mm. of deciding how much to eat, what to eat. This cumulative stress gets to people and eventually they go back to eating what everyone around them is eating. But if you make it easy, so your meal is this that you make up in a glass of water, well, that takes away that difficulty, which is a huge step forward. And so I base the Newcastle diet on the liquid formula diet together with non-starchy vegetables because man or woman does not live by metabolism alone. We need to look after our gut. And so clearly some roughage, some chewing was essential, not only to keep the gut happy and our persons free of constipation, but also allowing people to chew. And that led to the concept of non-starchy vegetables in addition. And that was the diet that we used in counterpoint and counterbalance. And certainly it's the optimal diet that we continue to use. I would say that in direct, which was uh, a joint effort between myself and Mike Lean, um, Mike, with his background in obesity research, uh, had also devised a way of delivering this into primary care. He had used a liquid diet only method. And so direct was a compromise between our respective right. approaches. And so in direct, we'd used a liquid diet only. It works, but you need to take laxatives. And I've certainly gone back to using the non-starchy vegetables in clinical practice. I devised this diet and I was still expecting to have a really hard job in counterpoint, this first study, to convince people that this was 
worthwhile sticking to. Mm. It's going to be difficult. But to my utter astonishment, people were coming back saying, well, it was tough in the first two days, but it's no problem. I'm just not finding it difficult. I'm not hungry. Now, it's a remarkable thing. But once people are established on an 800 kilocalorie day a day, uh, day a diet, diet a day, mm-hmm. um, then they don't experience a sensation of hunger. And this is something we can use. So losing weight is a class act. You need to severely restrict calorie intake in a responsible uh, way with complete nutrition apart from calories. And then we need to bring people gradually back to land because this diet is only for the weight loss. We need to have a stepwise fashion of bringing people back into normal eating. And that's what we'd learned from CounterPoint. So in CounterBalance, we use a stepwise approach that indeed uh, we used in direct and demonstrated that yes, this was okay. In the long term, the third phase, if you like, of diabetes remission, that's the $64,000 question because people are still in the same environment. Mm -hmm. The friends and family, by and large, are still eating in the same pattern, and they're still subject to all the uh, pressures that they were under before. So it's unsurprising that it's difficult for people to keep their weight down. The determined people do. And at two years in direct, uh, 36% of people were still free of diabetes off all their diabetes meds. So it's possible, but it's an individual matter. And we've got to appreciate the hugely challenging effect of our current environment. Yeah, yeah. I never thought about the fact if they've got this uh, lower personal fat threshold and the rest of the family and friends are sort of somewhat immune to the diabetes, it's very difficult for the um, patient to go back to their normal eating habits without obviously um, overshooting the mark and crossing that threshold again so obviously what's your um how do you approach and you said it's a sixty-four thousand dollars question how do you approach that maintenance phase what are some of the determinants that the successful people have um or you've noted in successful people yeah first thing is again there's no one size that suits all we offer people a choice of a mediterranean style lowish carbohydrate pattern of eating If they like that, that's wonderful. I'll go with that. There's a possibility of just cutting back on the carbohydrates. Now, the British diet, as you might know, is uniquely centered around the potato. And in more recent decades, rice, pasta uh, have come in as well. Bread is fairly big. Um, And so in Britain, with our average population carbohydrate intake of 45% of total carbohydrate intake, higher than the rest of Europe, it's very wise to advise a specific decrease in that portion on the plate. So only one medium-sized potato or whatever is appropriate for the person to uh, have explained to them. For instance, how much rice would you usually have in terms of cooked rice, in terms of handfuls? Well, no, it's only got to just fit in the palm of your hand and not be piled high. So the carbohydrate-limited diet. Also, we mention um, uh, timed fasting. 
Some mm. people find it really quite useful just not to eat before midday. If there are people who don't need breakfast, they can do that fine. If there are people who have to eat breakfast, otherwise they're snacking in the morning, forget it. So timed fasting in various ways, and uh, that can be uh, the way popularized by Michael Mosley of uh, uh, two days fasting a week, that works just fine. And uh, in Michael's eloquent book, uh, The Eight-Week uh, Blood Sugar Diet, that was based on two interviews with me, just when we had yeah. the early results of counterbalance and the full results of counterpoint. And, you know, uh, Michael turned it to a, a dramatically practical method. So, that is a way that's feasible. Also, in addition to this, any way of minimizing calorie intake, we have the important matter of physical activity. Now, in order to achieve the weight loss, it's really important that doctors, dietitians, mm. and especially exercise uh, enthusiasts realize that you must not start a new exercise program. Do not do that because people who have eaten themselves into that position and are middle-aged, no longer young, are particularly prone to compensatory eating. And that's why people join a gym, have a huge fitness bout for exercise and discover their weight doesn't change. What a mystery. Well, it's not a mystery. It's well described in the literature. It's just uh, verboten to talk about in an exercise-centered mm. meeting. Mm. And this important message about how to lose weight, that component of it, needs to be balanced by the fact that the best way to maintain weight and avoid weight regain over years is to make sure that we have an increase in daily physical activity built into everyday life, certainly. Something that is going to use substantial amounts of calories. And that means one thing. It means it's got to have a decent time base. Not enough of made of the the fact that it's a long duration activity that has an effect upon calories. Mm. And so this matter of cutting back, keeping the food under control, but recognizing that a more active lifestyle is useful in the long term needs to be just pushed because at the moment we have no better way of avoiding the weight regain. Brilliant. Um, one way that is emerging. Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts. You mentioned it briefly in your paper, and there's been a couple recent trials on these GLP-1 um, agonist drugs. They're fascinating. I've, I've never articulated it. Semiglutide, I think one of them is, um, yes. which is showing significant weight loss, and it's working via, as I understand, like the um, neurobiology in the hypothalamus of um, controlling appetite. Um, and I think they're starting to see benefits in diabetics. Is that correct? What's, yeah. Can you explain the, these that's, drugs and where we're at with them? That's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, these GLP-1 agonists came out of research upon the incretin hormones, these ho clever hormones that are made by the gut. Now, it's turned into an industry of its own because the story was over-egged and the belief that the GLP-1 agonists like liraglutide, which is the commonest in clinical use, certainly in the UK, um, were actually stimulating the pancreas to produce more insulin, which <laughs> is what irony. the incretin hormones do, is just one of these amazing myths that have been perpetuated by 
the pharmaceutical industry mm. naturally wanting to sell uh, their agents. They do have great effects, but they don't stimulate the pancreas to produce insulin. It's almost a joke. After bariatric surgery, bariatric surgeons got hugely excited when the spike of GLP-1 after eating due to more rapid delivery of food into the gut was recognized. They said, that's why the diabetes goes away. Yeah. It's complete hooey, absolute <laughs> hooey. It is at the, uh, the absurd end of the spectrum of science. But nonetheless, once a belief has taken root, it will live on for a long time. But these GLP-1 agonists have got really important effects. The most important is on gastric emptying. Gastric emptying is hugely delayed, and that's why people eat less on oh, these yeah. agents. There may well be very useful effects upon the hypothalamus as well. The jury's out on that right. because we have a very big effect upon the stomach. Right. And what matters in medicine is not the p-value, it's the effect size. Yeah, and here we have an effect size that is really very big. These are hugely important agents that deliver a huge practical benefit. Uh, and so, in a way, the way they work is perhaps of secondary importance to doctors. But we shouldn't get carried away with the cleverness of these drugs. They have a good effect. They will delay gastric emptying. They may have an effect upon appetite itself, centrally. And they're looking good because semaglutide has got a very good effect. And the recent uh, new data published by the, uh, the agent that has combined GLP and GIP, that's terzepide, um, that was published in the New England Journal just uh, a few weeks ago, suggests that that is even more powerful so we're talking about drug-induced weight losses of 11, 12 upwards kilograms. Mm. That's the useful range. Mm. What we don't yet know is disentangling these initial pharmaceutical studies into the real world, just how that translates when there's not the intensive dietetic support that often goes along with these studies. So we shouldn't get swept away, mm. but at the same time, the field of drugs to achieve weight loss is being revolutionized mm. because having a pharmaceutical agent that appears genuinely by its own actions to produce sustained eight, nine, 10 kilogram weight loss, probably more, uh, that's really exciting. Perhaps less exciting is a likely price tag these new agents will have, but yes. uh, I I know nothing about that. I'm just really firing from the hip about what usually happens in a field. Yeah, yeah. But you know, this is uh, superb research that's led to these agents, and clearly, um, uh, research costs have got to be recouped by uh, the agents. Yeah. So, in answer to your question, there's a very hopeful future in uh, useful drugs that can. Uh, not only achieve weight loss, but also prevent weight regain. And I think we ought to be watching this space with great interest in type 2 diabetes. Really, my work has illustrated the physiology. It's mm. illustrated the cause of type 2 diabetes, hopefully in terms of glittering uh, clarity. Moving from there, we know that those patients who can, will, lose a substantial weight. Some people can't. And 
this shouldn't be used as a stick to beat those people who happen not to be for whatever reason of mm. social circumstance of hypothalamic setup because we all have different levels of appetite and that's something which is hardly ever mentioned if only we would plot out the population distribution of appetite mm. we may see why some people uh, are born survivors and will accumulate calories in any situation so uh, we need to move forward with all this all this benefit and not be uh, if you like uh, too precious about the means whereby we can actually bring about reversal and long-term remission of type 2 diabetes. Very well said. All right, so we'll wrap up. It's, you've been, yeah, very generous with your time. Um, you mentioned just briefly you, the study looking at to seeing the stepwise changes. Anything else on the horizon for you? And what, what would you like to see in the future? Well, one thing that's on the future is the five-year follow-up of direct in uh, precisely four weeks' time, I think the very last person will cross the five-year ah, mark. Right. Now, it's going to take us a long time to analyze all these data. Uh, it's a massive database. We have a whole biostatistics unit uh, that, uh, that will do it um, and do this huge task. So it's not going to be until the very end of this year or into next year. But I have to say that the um, results of direct, the five-year follow-up, have been considerably uh, skewed by the COVID epidemic. And of course. And yes, weight gain uh, does get underway as soon as we achieve the very remarkable uh, over 15 kilograms weight loss after the weight loss phase of direct. Uh, so down to about 11 kilograms at one year, uh, just under nine kilograms at two years, Yes, that weight regain is underway, and that's what I was referring to as the big question. Over the five years, we had expected this would flatten out, and we would still have a useful number of people free of diabetes. We have no idea what those results are going to show. We'll have to look closely at the time course of when COVID hit, because mm. we know that some people put on a lot of weight during lockdown in Britain. We know that some people found it easier in mm, lockdown mm. to avoid the temptations. But when they went back to their environment of walking past coffee shops and their mates at work saying, it's my birthday, have some cake, then they too put on weight. So this double whammy of lockdown and release from lockdown um, will affect the results of direct. But watch this space. Even if the overall remission rates are a little disappointing, it's still going to give us great insight into what people do and how things roll out over the few years after remission is achieved in this trial setting. Mm, I look forward to those results. Professor Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's amazing you've put all these pieces of the puzzle together. Um, it seems like it's almost complete, but you sound like a... A uh, scientist that wants to keep digging, so well done. Congratulations, and um, thanks for your time. Thank you. Watch this space, Nathan. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.